Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Outcomes Rocket listeners, welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders. I thank you for tuning in, and I invite you to go to outcomesrocket.health, where you could check out today's episode again, if you loved it, or you could check out our other episodes and leave us a rating and review, as well as subscribe. We love hearing from you and can't wait to hear what you think. Without further ado, I have our outstanding guest. His name is Wout Brusselars. He is the founder and CEO at Deep Six AI. He's a strategic leader and influential change agent who persistently develops new opportunities to innovate, grow, and improve efficiency through rigorous analysis, out-of-the-box thinking, and hands-on operational management. He's done some really interesting things, has been mentioned as top 100 most disruptive companies in the world 2017, as well as won many awards, uh, including the Accelerator Enterprise and Smart Data Category Award. Done a lot. And so what I want to do is open up the microphone for Wout to fill in any of the gaps in the intro. Wout, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Uh, Thank you, Sol. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, you're at Deep Six AI and you were at Health 2.0. We got a chance to learn a little bit more about what you guys were up to. What got you into the healthcare side of things to begin with? Good question. And I wish I had a really nice, sappy story about my granddaughter <laughs> passing away and having stuff like it. In reality, as it befits a data company, we were a little bit more analytical about it. We started our company dealing with the U.S. intelligence community. So we were in a different field altogether, mm-hmm. dealing with some of the biggest intelligence agencies and some other clients there. Wow. Things were going great until a little over a year ago, actually almost two years ago now, we uh, had delivered a project and we had an offer of another project. And then they mentioned to us like, you know what, the next step for you guys to do is to hire a retired four-star general and start knocking on some doors. And you're going to grow fantastically. And so me and my co-founder, we looked at each other like hiring a retired four-star general, becoming like a lobbyist to deal with the government. Never. That's just not us. That's not our company. And we knew that what we had been building was something that had much wider applicability. Mm -hmm. We we were basically using a combination of various AI routines to deal with massive amounts of uh, high velocity, high variety, um, high complexity data, right? Or high variety data. Yes. And we felt there's a lot of opportunity to bring that into healthcare. It was a combination of us not willing to become a government, what shall I say, client or whatever, right? And and provider. And feeling like we had a tool that had proven itself in arguably the most complex and difficult data environment in the world to deal with, right? Intelligence is looking at all the data all the time in real time, right? And sifting out the the, the true from the false. If we can do that, we can probably do something in healthcare as well, which is very vertical. So um, we spoke to a couple of people in healthcare, got some really good feedback, built a very early prototype of what we could do based on our platform. And then we applied to the Techstars um, Healthcare Accelerator, got accepted. And from then we were all in. 
That is so cool. And what's interesting, well, thanks for the background and the story about that. Uh, you find yourself in these moments. And listeners, we all find ourselves in these moments where you're faced with making a decision, a decision between what you stand for, a decision between doing something that you love and doing something that you have to. And wow, take us back to that moment and tell us a little bit more about the thought process, the feeling, everything that led to you just finally saying, this is what we're going to do. I would say the key variable in that decision were honestly a couple of shots of vodka. Um, <laughs> it, it was us. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I had a better theory. Again, I should look at my story before I do these things. But oh, that's great. Me and my co-founder, we, we got this offer like, the next level is going to be a bigger contract, do this whole thing. And, and both of us kind of stepped out of the meetings like, ah, I don't feel good about this. Neither do I. Are we going to go back and say yes? Are we going to go back and say maybe? Are we going to go back and say no? So we already had been looking at healthcare, some other opportunities. We had some thoughts about it and we kind of took the gamble. So like down two shots. Are we sure about this? Had another shot. Are we sure about this? And then we felt like sufficiently inebriated and incapacitated <laughs> to not worry about the consequences and go back and say like, this is it. Oh my goodness. Well, you, you know what? That's pretty funny. And you just did, you got into the state where you're just like, okay, this deep down inside, if we're going to make this happen, we're going to make something happen that feels good to us. And oftentimes, Wout, I feel like as leaders, we spend too much time in our head and those shots of vodka Potentially, you know, there's other ways to get there. That's one way, which, hey, good for you. And there's other ways to do it as well. And so leaders, the message that Wout is getting to us is that you have to make sure that you not only spend time in your head, but you spend time in your heart when making big decisions like that. Would you say I summed it up well, Wout? Yeah, absolutely. I think you have to trust your gut to some extent, right? And yes. you have to be willing to come to a place where you can kind of balance the strategic with the opportunistic. And sometimes you feel like, you know what, this is a great opportunity. But strategically, it doesn't really fit in the long-term plan or doesn't make me feel good. And so you say no to things. Sometimes it's the other thing. Like you say, like, you know, this is not exactly our strategy, but the opportunity is great. And I can still see how eventually it'll fall into our strategy. And then you can say yes to things. But it's kind of having that broad framework that is flexible and dynamic, but it's kind of a compass. And yeah. like you said, there's a moral component. There is a strategic component. There's a lot of things that come into it. Yeah, for sure. No, that's awesome. I appreciate that and appreciate the candid answer. <laughs> Well, would you say, um, so today, you know, you guys, how many years have you been in healthcare now? We're now in our second year. Second year. So in the two years that you've spent in healthcare, what would you say the one thing as it relates to AI or anything that you feel in general, healthcare leaders need to be thinking about? There's a lot of, a lot of insights, a lot of thoughts. I've been thinking about that a lot. The one thing that is honestly the most appropriate to us and to some extent self-serving because it's a business that we are running, right? So I'm, yes. I'm, I'm going to focus on that is I believe that C-level or VP-level executives in healthcare should really think about how to optimize clinical trial and clinical research as a C-level opportunity for a hospital. And what I mean by that is that if you are leading a large healthcare organization today, right? You're yes. taking care of patients, you're, you're doing population health, you're doing so many things. You should understand that one of the big levers, one of the big tools you have is to use your patient database and your talent on site to further clinical research. The reasons why, right, is one, it is a great revenue opportunity with fee-for-service coming under pressure, right? You can no longer make more money by prescribing more MRIs or CT scans. Yes. You are going to either cut down or find other ways to monetize your know-how, and research is probably one of the best ways there. Two, every time that you engage in research, every new trial that you conduct on your site is an opportunity for your patients to get access to cutting-edge care. 
So you're, you're opening up the door for drugs or treatments that are only available to your patients now, right? And it will probably take another five to 10 years before they're going to be on the market. But that have oftentimes proven in earlier phase trials, like phase one and two, that they are better than many other commercial drugs out there today. And that's specifically true for oncology drugs, where there's about 800 oncology drugs that are now in various stages of trials that have been shown to work better than commercially available drugs. But the only access you can give to patients for whom this could be a life or death decision, right, is via clinical trials. So again, you have the monetary capacity or aspect of this. You have the patient outcomes, engagement, and satisfaction. And then thirdly, an organization that does a lot of clinical trials opens itself up to cutting-edge thinking about what is the next wave of treatments, right? How can we think more? How can we learn more from what we do every day? It allows you to build an institutional knowledge base and basically disseminate all this thinking from the frontier of medicine. And it allows you to attract talent that is interested in that and is forward-leaning. I just feel like if you combine all of that, it should be a no-brainer. For sure. If you're a C-level executive, spend more time thinking about how you can leverage your site to do more clinical research. That is a really interesting thought. And as we approach the new age of healthcare, it's important that the listeners, you know, if you are an executive at a hospital, you think about out-of-the-box things to create new revenue streams, especially when we've got this uh, value for service coming in instead of fee-for-service. Wout, what would you say right now, the percentage of hospitals actually taking advantage of this type of leverage? Today, it's mostly the, the academic medical centers, right, that are big on research because it's, it's basically in their cultural DNA, you would say. Yes. So about 10%, I'd say roughly 600 are doing a lot of, of research. But if you look at the numbers in recent years, where you see the biggest growth in bringing new trials, and of course, they benefit from the law of small numbers, right? If you have zero trials to start with, if you add one or two, it's a great percentage-wise increase. But if you look at that, there's a lot of growth in smaller hospitals, in clinics, in even community hospitals that realize that they have access to patients, to demographic of patients that typically don't frequent academic, academic medical centers. centers yeah. If you think about LA, you have Cedars-Sinai, right? A very well-known and very prestigious academic medical center, because most of the patients that go there are fairly of a certain demographic. They're fairly well off. They can afford to go there or their yeah. insurance can afford to send them there. There are so many other patients of an interesting background who cannot afford to go there, who go to community hospitals, but they are typically the patients that pharma companies are thinking about the most. A lot of basically long-term diseases, right? The lifestyle diseases, yes. cardiovascular diseases are typically frequenting these populations more than the more affluent patients at the AMCs. Yeah, that's very fascinating. A unique idea for sure. And uh, appreciate you sharing that. Uh, I think it's uh, very unique. Haven't heard that one on the on the show before. You know, we typically run into things like population health or chronic disease management or, you know, the usual suspects. But this is definitely an out-of-the-box thought. So appreciate you uh, mentioning that. Thank you. I, I would call it like democratizing access to clinical trials, right? Opening it up to some of the underrepresented populations and demographics because those are the people you want to sell to eventually. And if you can actually do trials on them, your drugs will only get better. Totally. Totally. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because the base sample of people that you're trying them on too is, is also varied, right? So you can measure for those different uh, effects on the different people. Absolutely. And that is the basic premise of precision medicine, right? You're going to get really into the specific patient. And if you cannot represent those patients when you're testing or building those new treatments, you're never going to be able to get there. Totally. Hey, well, give us an example of how your company and you and, your, and what you guys are doing have created improved outcomes. 
So it depends on your definition of outcomes in what we do, which is basically applying artificial intelligence to a wide variety of clinical data, right? To find and match patients to clinical trials much faster. An outcome that we measure is how many patients can you find for trials and how long does it take you to find those patients? If you have a target, say, for a trial, and I'm going to use a real-life case right now that we did at, at Cedars-Sinai, we had a principal investigator, a PI, who was doing a study for a biomarker for non-small cell lung cancer. She had spent 12 months to find 23 patients for her trial so she could test whether the biomarker worked, publish the results, and try to commercialize this, which, which is a great step forward. So after 12 months, she only had 23 patients. When we met with her the very first time, she shared her inclusion and exclusion criteria, i.e. what do these patients need to have and cannot have for them to be allowed into a trial. She shared those with us. Eight minutes later, we had entered them in our software. We had run our AI program against the clinical data of the patient database that we'd ingested. And we had found 58 matching patients for her trial, including the 23 that she had already recruited beforehand. So we literally took an effort that had taken her many, many months down to a couple of minutes. And that's a, that's we had impressive. her validate that. That's impressive. And after validating the patients, everybody met the mark? They were qualified? Yes, of, of the 58, yes. Basically what we did is we returned more than 58. We probably had somewhere in the 80s or something. Okay, and as she it. went through them, our software, what it does is it takes a first stab at algorithmically matching patients to trials. So it's say like, this is what the AI thinks should be a match. And then we give you a tool to basically have a human user validate it. So it's a synergistic or a centaur approach where human and machine intelligence interact to go to the best results. Very cool. I love that. That is a result. That is an outcome. <laughs> and so, Absolutely. yeah, that's really interesting. And, and so, again, I go back to provider leaders. If you're thinking about going this route, it just makes so much sense to, if you don't have the expertise and you're wanting to break into something new, why not partner with a company like Wouts to help you get there faster and more efficiently? That's a really cool, cool thought. Can you give us an example wow, of a time when you've had a setback or a failure and what you learned from that? Today or can it be longer than that? Yeah, it, it could. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kidding. Every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, if you're in a startup, it's a roller coaster ride, right? Yes. It's up and down and you're always chasing your next high, your next success. So there's always something. We do extensive post-mortems and we do expensive what I call like A-B testing, what works, what doesn't work. One of the early things that didn't work is what we wanted to do originally going to market was using our platform, which is basically that using AI and clinical data to find patients and learn more about patients much faster, right? Our original purpose had been to build a platform that uses that for clinical decision support. So what we were going to do is basically say, we use our software to build a patient's graph. Every patient that that we see, we take all of the data from different sources, the EMR, pathology reports, tumor registries, devices, basically anything we can get our hands on. We take, we unify that into a graph. So a patient becomes like a multidimensional vector with all the symptoms, diseases, outcomes, treatments, genomics, biomics, all the data points on there. Once yes. you have a patient represented as a graph, right, you can search and match that and compare them to other patients. So all the data that you have about a patient now becomes analyzable. Whereas today, most of the data is in documents, it's in written notes, and traditional software cannot deal with that. Right. So we felt like we, we had a very powerful platform, but we were looking for the right use case. And we thought once you represent a patient as a graph, you can go to your doctor and your doctor can say like, hey, Saul, based on the graph that I have of you, there are another 5,000 patients that look almost the same as you do on the dimensions that are really important, the symptoms that brought you in today. Based on those other 5,000 patients over the last, say, year or something that's, that's physicians like me have seen, these were the diagnoses 
that were there. These were the outcomes, right? These were the treatments that were prescribed for those diagnoses. These were the outcomes. So they can kind of have a very statistical approach to how do other patients respond to things very similar to you. We felt like it was almost like a crystal ball where you can see your own future. So six months from now, I can expect this if I take this treatment or that if I take another treatment. We thought that was brilliant, which goes to show that we didn't know that much about healthcare. Um, <laughs> Because when we started talking to a lot of physicians and, and executives at healthcare organizations, they're like, you know, that's great, but that's science fiction. That's going to take too long to validate. If you're a startup, you don't have the time to play around with this. Right. This is going to take you 18 months to sell to an organization. And you probably, you'll run out of cash before you do that. So a major pivot for us was to move from clinical decision support and land on something that had a much shorter sales cycle, yes. still very effective and high ROI for an organization which is the clinical trials matching. Beautiful. Oh man, that's so great. And I love that you guys are just very serious, very, very tuned in to what's needed. And you know, what I find out is on the entrepreneur side of things, it's that tenacity to be able to, to say, all right, this is not working. This sales cycle is way too long. The ROI is not there for the organization. I got to pivot. And, and a lot of people get stuck there. What advice would you give to the entrepreneurs listening to this, looking to make an impact in healthcare to make a shift like you guys did? Oh, there's, there's a couple of things to come into that. One thing is you cannot afford to fail, right? But if you're going to fail, fail very fast so you can move on. In startups, right, the typical thing where people say time is money, for startups, it's the opposite. Money is time. You only have a limited amount of dollars and that only buys you a certain amount of time so you can feed the team, basically. If yep. you know that you only have that amount of time, you know that you have to hit certain milestones before you're going to run out of money, which means you have to land the sale and other things. Thinking back from that, right, if by X I'm going to run out of money, which means I have to do a sale by Y and it means my sales cycle is this, you're basically you have to be ruthless about selecting the options that are going to work. You have to be facing reality. You know, thinking like, is this working? Is this not working? Am I losing time? What, what I basically tell our team now is the concept of daily accountability. Is okay. what I'm doing today going in the right direction? If it's not working, right? And sometimes it takes a while. It takes two, three weeks, sometimes a month before you know, but every day you have to measure some kind of progress. Yes. And if you're starting to see that evidence is accumulating that's pointing to the wrong direction, right? Or saying this is not working, don't hesitate. Pull the plug and try something else. That is on point, Wout. And so listeners, if you're an entrepreneur, take that to heart. You got to be very tuned in. You got to be ruthless. You got to be in tune with the timelines and be sure to deliver on those timelines. And if you get negative feedback, fail fast and make it happen. Great uh, words of wisdom there, Wout. Thanks for sharing that. We're you're touching welcome. a little bit on every of, of the listeners here on the, on the Outcomes Rocket. So it's pretty, pretty great. I uh, appreciate you doing that. Tell us a little bit more about a proud moment that you've had. So you walked to one of the setbacks. Tell us about a proud leadership moment in medicine for you. There's quite a few. And luckily, because we have a strong team and I feel like I can take pride in their accomplishments, which means I don't have to do much myself. One of the proud moments we had was at South by Southwest last year when, one, we, we won the Enterprise Data Award, which was great. We were basically, we met with, with ex-Vice President Joe Biden, which, which awesome. was yeah, an experience that was beyond my expectations. I tend to be a bit of a cynic and think like, oh yeah, fine, we'll meet him with Joe Biden, whatever. But when you actually meet a guy and he talks passionately about what he stands for in the moonshot effort to cure cancer, I walked away super impressed. So there was all of that. But then probably the most important moment was when I got off a stage at South by Southwest where I was talking about Connect to End Cancer, which was one of the events. And I had actually a cancer survivor who just came up to me and told me like, 
I love what you're doing. What you are doing really makes a difference for people like me. And this was a highly educated, very, very impressive woman who was a mm. stage three cancer survivor. Wow. Her husband was an oncologist. She was highly informed and everything. But she told me, I am trying to get into clinical trials because I know that is the way for me to beat my cancer. Yes. What I do today is I go to websites where I type in my type of cancer that I have with even some of genetic information. But what I get back in terms of matching trials, I get 140 trials that, that I might be eligible for, which means that I have to sift through 140 trials, which means in many cases, they sent me to a website where I have to take a survey or I have to be on a phone call or I actually have to go and meet with a PI or trials coordinator. And then they start deciding whether I'm eligible or not. So that takes me many, many months to weed it down. And then they tell me, oh, we cannot enroll in this trial because of this. With our software, three or four clicks, you will know in minutes whether you're eligible for trial or not, which for these people saves you so much time and allows you to focus where your time is best spent. That was really a proud moment when she basically validated our idea, said this would make a difference. Until then, it was a business, right? And it's really right. for us like we're doing this and we want to make this. But when you meet a person like this, we were completely blown away. Yeah. Yeah. It just gives it that much more meaning and validation that it's actually on point with what the market needs. Absolutely. And also with what, what can be really be a life or death situation for an individual person, which is incredible in a way. I mean, if you're a physician, you're probably used to that. Every day you can make a difference in a person's life. If you're a startup, it's a privilege to be able to do that. Totally and, and agree. It's, it's a great motivation for the entire team. I mean, everybody was, was, when I mentioned that, oh yeah. And by the way, I spoke about this first. And by the way, oh, we also won the, the award and we met with President, Vice President Joe Biden. But that all was like, nobody listened to that anymore. It was all about this person we met where he actually said, you guys are making a difference for us. Yeah, that's highly impactful. Highly impactful. That's awesome, man. Congratulations on that, on that whole, that was a great day, wasn't it? It was amazing. It's hard <laughs> to, yeah. If that's such your standard, like, how are we going to top that? You're like, oh man, I got a lot of work to do now. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> wow. Tell us a little bit more about a project that you're focused on today. We have a lot of different projects that we're doing. There are what I call the research projects and the technology projects. There are more like the use case projects. One of the things that we're trying to do right now is to basically create a, let's call it a, a marketplace, right? Which is a public platform where all the stakeholders in clinical trials, which means hospitals at our sites that conduct trials, um, sponsors or pharma companies or medical device companies that are running the trials, right? CROs, which are the facilitators and the subcontractor trials, but also patients. We want to build a platform where all of those can interact and where they can basically find out about trials or find out about sites or find out about sponsors or about patients so they can all share their data. And that big stumbling block of mismatching patients to trials and spending many months to, to do that matchmaking, we want to make sure that becomes completely effortless and it happens in minutes or a matter of days. We want to really crush that whole timeline by bringing everybody on the same platform. That is awesome, man. That is really interesting. And I'm definitely going to be tuning into the things that you guys are, are up to because that is awesome. And, and listeners, here and after the lightning round with the syllabus that we're going to do, you're going to be able to, Wout is going to share what, where his website is and best place to follow what they're doing. So Wout, we're here getting to the end. So appreciate you working with us to keep this super interesting. Right now, what we're going to do is I have four questions for you, lightning round style. We're going to build a syllabus on what it takes to be successful in medicine. It's the 101 or the ABCs of Wout Brusillaris. And so well, I've got four questions for you. First one is here. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? Looking at data. One of the big issues that you have today is that there is no big data in healthcare. 
you have massive amounts of little data, but they're all locked and fragmented in individual files. One of the reasons why they're locked and fragmented is because most of the data is unstructured and it has PHI in there. Using AI, you can weed out the, HI, the PHI, you can bring all of that data together. And like I said before, every time you treat one patient, you can learn from millions of other patients that have gone through the same thing. I think that is going to be a game changer. What is the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? In general, I think being complacent, thinking that the way that things are happening today is the way they should be. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? Allowing yourself to change as well. Finally, what's one area of focus that should drive everything else in your company? Good question. It's hard to boil it down to one thing because I'm kind of thinking it's a metric. For us, in a way, it's user growth. I feel like if we are convincing our users, if we find people are signing up and are buying into what we're doing and are growing, we must be doing something right. right. All the other feel, all the other things fall into place if we get that right. Love it, man. Beautiful. What book would you recommend to the listeners? Well, that's a hard sell because I change my favorite book almost every week. <laughs> Give us the week's book. <laughs> so this week's book, a book that I've been incredibly impressed with, have been actually is a book called A Secondhand Time by a Russian author called Svetlana Alexievich. Oh, wow. um, she won the Nobel Prize in Literature a couple of years ago. And what she has basically done for years, she has been chronicling the daily reactions of people or of almost generations of people as they transitioned from communism to today's hypercapitalism in Russia. And you really see the outline of people that were completely sold on one idea and one ideal of a society and how they felt betrayed by that or, or in some cases validated by that and how they had to deal with change. It's really interesting on a personal level, but also as a startup. It talks about change and changing your ideas as a human and at the most macro level. She calls herself a chronicler of the soul, which is kind of quite very an exaggeration, yeah. but it's a very intelligent and very in-depth analysis of just human beings and everything. I, I think it's an amazing book. Love it. What a great recommendation. And so listeners, don't worry about writing any of this down. Go to outcomesrocket.health slash wout. That's W-O-U-T, like shout. And uh, you'll be able to find all of the show notes as well as a link to this book, a link to his company, and all the amazing things that we've talked about. Wout, we're here to the end. If you can, just share a closing thought with the listeners and the best place where they could get a hold of you. Well, first of all, thank you for listening. If anybody is listening apart from the two of us, and I hope they will. Oh, they are. Um, believe me. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Please seek us out, right? Please come and see if we're making good on our promise of always over and living to our users. Go to www.deep6.ai, and that's deep letters, D-E-P, the number 6.ai. Follow us, subscribe to our newsletter, and keep motivating us the way you're motivating us today. We are all in the same boat. We're all trying to get more better healthcare to people faster. And it's a daily struggle and we're glad to be able to contribute our thing to it. And what's the best place they could get a hold of you or follow you? Probably our website. We have a newsletter on there. Okay. We have our Twitter feed Got on it. there. It kind Perfect. of lists everything on there. Wonderful. So listeners, there you have it. Sign up to their, their website, get those updates. These guys are really thought leaders in what they're doing. So wow, I just want to say thank you once again and looking forward to keeping up on the progress that you guys make. Thank you. And thanks for hosting us here. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.